Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Say It Loud, Black Power. When did we start talking about race the way we do today? We don't mean when we started talking about the problems, both political and conceptual, surrounding race. As this series of podcasts has shown, many of those political and conceptual questions have been with us since at least the 18th century, even if responses to them have constantly been evolving. We mean the actual language you hear around race, like a strong preference for terms like black or African-American instead of Negro, critiques of institutional racism, talk of pride in being black, as well as backlash terms like the accusation of reverse racism. Of course, the change has been a gradual one, and such linguistic change is still going on today. Think most obviously of the way the phrase Black Lives Matter became increasingly prominent over the course of the second decade of this century. Still, it's a striking fact that as of the mid-60s, we start to find Africana philosophical thinkers writing in English about race in a way that does not feel nearly as dated as like-minded literature from the 1950s, to say nothing of before then. One reason for this shift was the Black Power Movement, which was, among other things, a concerted effort by Black activists to seize control of the language of race. As Stokely Carmichael, originator of the term Black Power, put it, for once, Black people are going to use the words they want to use, not just the words whites want to hear. Carmichael, later known as Kwame Ture, introduced the slogan in 1966 in the context of a civil rights march in Mississippi. He was at this time a member of the SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, as it was often pronounced. This organization found itself adopting a more militant stance than older institutions like the NAACP. As Carmichael explains in his autobiography, Ready for Revolution, he became a part of SNCC during his time as a student at Howard University. Especially formative in his development were the Freedom Rides, which were organized primarily by CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. This effort to desegregate public transportation in the South allied Carmichael with Martin Luther King Jr., as it was a case of nonviolent protest intended to provoke Southern racists into violent retaliation. As Carmichael explains, this tactic caused internal debate within the various protest groups firstly because it was so dangerous, and secondly because it relied upon the enemy to be stupid enough to overreact. Fortunately, as Carmichael also explains, racism is its own worst enemy, and that is exactly what happened. In his autobiography, Carmichael emphasizes the difficulty and profundity of nonviolence. More than a tactic, it is a philosophy of life, which, as King told him, requires such levels of discipline and self-control that nothing external can affect the internal will of the adherent of nonviolence. But even if he continued to respect King and his methods, Carmichael drifted towards a position more like that of Malcolm X. While still a young activist, he attended the debate we mentioned in episode 99 between X and Bayard Rustin. At this point, Carmichael sympathized with Rustin's commitment to nonviolence, but he remembered that X won the debate by tapping into the raw power, the visceral potency of the grip our unarticulated collective blackness held over us. Franz Fanon was another major influence. Like him, Carmichael hailed from the Caribbean, to be specific, from Trinidad. Yes, it's another Trinidadian. This esteemed lineage was discussed at length in a speech by one of its greatest luminaries, C.L.R. James. 
he honored Carmichael's most famous act of linguistic activism in 1967 by opening his address to an audience in London with the words, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, black power. James went on to share parts of a letter that he wrote to Carmichael after hearing him speak in Montreal. In the letter, James cites Fanon, as well as Marcus Garvey, Aimé Césaire, and one of those plentiful Trinidadians, George Padmore, as West Indians who have played a role on the world political stage that is not even properly understood by their own people. James then lets Carmichael know that he recognizes him as a member of this unique group. Carmichael moved to the States as a child, but as an adult could still code switch and talk like an islander if he wished. He attended Howard University, where he studied with, among others, E. Franklin Frazier, whose critique of the black bourgeoisie is echoed in Carmichael's writings. This brings us back to the changing use of language, and in particular the dropping of the word Negro in favor of the words black or simply African. Following Malcolm X on this point, Carmichael saw Negro as a term laden with the legacy of slavery. In a speech given in 1968 as part of the campaign to free the Black Panther leader Huey P. Newton from jail, and more on that next time, Carmichael said, We came to this country as black men and Africans. It took us 400 years to become Negroes. In another speech of the same year, he said that every Negro is a potential black man. The same point was made by Carmichael's successor as leader of SNCC, H. Rapp Brown, later known as Jamil Abdullah al-Amin. Brown moved in the same activist circles as Carmichael and made the same transition to a more militant stance. His own autobiography, Die, N-Word, Die, is an interesting contrast to Carmichael's, a long look backward that appeared posthumously in 2003. Published back in 1969, Brown's autobiography is shorter and spends less time on the historical details and internal disputes of the movement. Carmichael quotes Joyce Ladner's line that snick folk would argue with a street sign. Where Carmichael is a relatively calm, although jocular, narrator, Brown's autobiography bursts with profanity and rage, conveying his outsized personality. He tells of going to the White House, seething while other black leaders politely thanked President Lyndon Johnson for inviting them. When his turn to speak came, he told Johnson, I'm not happy to be here, and I think it's unnecessary that we have to be here protesting against the brutality that black people are subjected to. And furthermore, I think that the majority of black people that voted for you wish that they'd gone fishing. Brown's book includes some very sharp versions of the contrast drawn by Carmichael between Negroes and blacks. In fact, Brown lumps Negroes together with whites, saying that both groups have wished death to all blacks. He accuses assimilationist Negroes of being a mirror of the white world and of serving as unofficial policemen for whites. The real threat to the existing structure thus comes from black America. It's significant that Brown speaks here of a structure, one that he and other revolutionaries seek to destroy. Our modern understanding of racism as a structural problem, rather than solely an attitude held by individuals, certainly has roots that go back before the 1960s, but as we see here, it was articulated with particular clarity in the Black Power movement. A key document here is the book Black Power, The Politics of Liberation in America. Carmichael wrote it together with Charles Hamilton, a political scientist from Lincoln University, though he says in his autobiography that it was actually a collective SNCC project to which a number of members contributed. In the opening chapter, the authors distinguish between individual and institutional racism. To illustrate this distinction, they offer the following instructive example. The infamous bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, which took the lives of four little girls, is, Carmichael and Hamilton suggest, 
an instance of individual racism. It is an egregious example and is indeed widely deplored by most segments of the society. Institutional racism, by contrast, often goes unnoticed. Carmichael and Hamilton explain, when in that same city, Birmingham, Alabama, 500 black babies die each year because of the lack of proper food, shelter, and medical facilities, and thousands more are destroyed and maimed physically, emotionally, and intellectually because of conditions of poverty and discrimination in the black community, that is a function of institutional racism. They go on to explain in detail the political, economic, and psychological dimensions of institutional racism. On the political front, for instance, power structures exclude black people from meaningful participation. We get a case study of this with the example of Tuskegee, Alabama. True to the spirit of Booker T. Washington, the black community of Tuskegee consistently chose an accommodationist and cooperative path, clinging to Christian ideals of love and goodwill that never applied in that area or any other of this country. They failed to see that so long as black people remained in a weaker position, whites would always act collectively to maintain that status quo. Thus, in 1957, when the black community were poised to achieve real political influence, the legislature gerrymandered Tuskegee. The middle-class blacks were shocked and hurt. They could not believe that their good white neighbors would do this to them. The lesson is clear. The only way to undermine institutional racism is to acquire sufficient power to dismantle racist institutions. Philosophically speaking, the term power does as much work as the term black in the phrase black power. It stands for the insight that a people must gather its own strength and act as a united front. Citing Machiavelli for the idea that it is rarely effective for the weak to ally with the strong, Carmichael and Hamilton advise, enter coalitions only after you are able to stand on your own. They observe that other communities have used this strategy and to great effect. The Irish, Poles, and Jews did not simply employ a Booker T. Washington ethic of hard work and assimilation, but formed themselves into political blocks. Indeed, institutional racism itself illustrates the point. The only reason no one ever talks about white power, Carmichael observed, is that power in this country is white. So this is the fundamental premise of black power, at least for Carmichael. Before a group can enter the open society, it must first close ranks. As Carmichael and Brown would have expected, some more moderate black leaders were not very happy about this. Black power seemed to be a new rationale for separatism and black nationalism, which they rejected. Roy Wilkins of the NAACP thus attacked black power as a reverse Ku Klux Klan, while King called it a philosophy nourished solely on despair, which suggests black supremacy and an anti-white feeling. In due course, though, the slogan would gain greater acceptance, in part by equating it to the less provocative notion of black pride. Thus King, gradually warming to the phrase, said that black power means instilling within the Negro a sense of belonging and an appreciation of heritage, a racial pride. We must never be ashamed of being black. By framing black power as a purely positive thing rather than as an oppositional idea, King arguably ignored its philosophical foundation. Carmichael studied philosophy at Howard and retained an interest in the subject. In an amusing passage of his autobiography, his fellow activist and editor Michael Thelwell describes him having a lengthy discussion of Gödel's incompleteness theorem and wonders what the cops must have thought if they were wiretapping the room. Among the ideas that gripped Carmichael was one that King himself often claimed to love, the Hegelian dialectic, according to which things gain their meaning through opposition. Urging black people to love white people, for instance, 
presupposes at least a capacity to hate them. This is how black power is meant to work. The phrase is not just a celebration of black people, but a call for black people to unite and then wield the resulting power on behalf of the black community in a situation that must be recognized as antagonistic. As H. Rapp Brown put it in response to the charge that he taught hate, if hate can be taught, ain't no better teacher than white people themselves. I hate oppression. I am anti-anybody who is anti-black. Now, if that includes most white people in America, it ain't my fault. This takes us to the issue that most clearly divided the partisans of black power from men like Wilkins and King, namely integration. As we've seen, both Carmichael and Brown were active in the struggle against segregation. They even went to jail for the cause and endured hunger strikes, but they were never particularly interested in winning the right to share social space with white people, at least not as an end in itself. Carmichael said this was a mere byproduct of the true goal, which was not integration, but liberation. In his autobiography, he recalls being challenged by a white woman during a sit-in at a restaurant and saying, I refuse to allow you or anyone else to dictate and define my rights. That's all. It's a matter of principle. Once we establish that principle, I guarantee you'll never see my face in this place again. Brown put the point more bluntly and with characteristic humor. He had no particular desire to eat hamburgers with white people. I always knew we had the best food anyway. As early as 1966, Carmichael was critiquing the project of integration, and not only because it was too limited. For him, it presupposed that the white community is intrinsically better than the black community, so that the only way blacks could improve their station would be for them to join the white world. He wanted instead to strengthen the black community from within. The racial and cultural personality of the black community, he argued, must be preserved, and the community must win its freedom while preserving its cultural integrity. This is the essential difference between integration as it is currently practiced and the concept of black power. Back in the 19th century, some Africana thinkers like Alexander Crummel praised the mobile and plastic nature of black people, which enabled them to imitate the best features of European culture. Against this, William Ferris argued in the early 20th century that it is better to be reflective than imitative. Now in the 1960s, Carmichael and Brown reiterated Ferris's position. As the book Black Power put it, blacks should create rather than imitate. Also increasingly important to Carmichael was the commonality between diasporic and continental Africans, as well as the common cause between black people and all oppressed peoples. Articulating the basis of his pan-Africanism, Carmichael stated that geographical boundaries did not mark the limits of his people. Rather, black people, whether we are in Durham, San Francisco, Jamaica, Trinidad, Brazil, Europe, or on the mother continent, are all an African people. We came from Africa, our race is African. The things that always distinguish us from white people, Europeans, are all African things. This last remark, by the way, was issued in Africa itself. Carmichael traveled to Ghana in 1968, where he became a protege of Kwame Nkrumah before settling in Guinea. So, not unlike Malcolm X, whom he quoted in this same speech, Carmichael's world travels broadened his worldview and his view of the struggle. We mentioned earlier that Fanon was also an inspiration for the Black Power movement. This is especially clear from the way that both Brown and Carmichael saw Black Americans as suffering from a domestic form of imperialism and colonialism. In the book Black Power, institutional racism is directly equated with colonialism. Carmichael went out of his way to insist that using the word colonialism in this context was more than a figure of speech. 
he saw no real difference between the practical techniques of oppression in other countries and at home in the U.S., nor in the psychological results of those techniques. The Negroes and black bourgeoisie, derided by Carmichael and Brown, were victims of colonialism. As Fanon had explained, victims of racism come to see black as bad and white as good and conclude that they must seek integration into white society. The black power thinkers also understood colonialist imperialism as a global phenomenon and frequently compared the situation of black Americans to that of the Vietnamese fighting against the American army. Carmichael called the Viet Cong brothers in arms. Carmichael denied what he saw as a facile and false assumption that whatever is good for America is good for black people. The reverse was closer to being the case. Far from there being a contradiction between American values and racist oppression, that oppression had been written into the very text of the U.S. Constitution. As for Brown, he, as usual, refused to mince words, writing, America's a bitch. Being black in this country is like somebody asking you to play white Russian roulette and giving you a gun with bullets in all the chambers. And in a somewhat more sober, but no less damning passage, America is the ultimate denial of the theory of man's continuous evolution. This country represents everything that humans have suffered from, their every affliction. Both of them point out that murdering Vietnamese soldiers for the U.S. Army makes you a hero, whereas murdering racist white policemen will get you sent to jail. Carmichael mused, I'd rather see a brother kill a cop than kill a Vietnamese. At least he's got a reason for killing the cop. The Black Power movement was unsurprisingly accused of being racist against whites and of fomenting violence. The response was to do some philosophy. Among the forms of power sought by the movement was what Carmichael called the right to define or power to define. He alluded in this context to Lewis Carroll's Humpty Dumpty, who used words to mean whatever he wanted them to mean. But the point was not a facetious one. As we've nowadays come to appreciate, the words we use and the meanings we give them matter a great deal in our perception of the world. So with respect to the word racism, Carmichael stipulates that it does not mean just any exclusion on the basis of race, but the subjugation of one race by another. The black people of this country have not lynched whites, bombed their churches, murdered their children, and manipulated laws and institutions to maintain oppression. White racists have. Brown likewise insists that black power does not imply white inferiority the way white supremacy implies black inferiority. Black nationalism and separatism, then, are not tantamount to racism. As for the accusation of promoting violence, this was another word that needed careful consideration. Think again of the contrast between fighting a war in Vietnam and defending yourself against a policeman. According to the government, the former is not violence because it is legitimate. If the state tells you to go halfway around the world to kill someone who never did you any harm, then it's fine for you to do so. But if the state tells you not to kill people who relentlessly harm you and your people, that's not fine. This leads to the insight that legitimacy is itself a product of power. The question, says Carmichael, is who has power to make his or her acts legitimate? The oppressor's legitimation of his own violence is so effective that even the oppressed victim accepts that violence as legitimate. From this point of view, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with being violent because its wrongness depends on the prevailing power conditions. Brown thus sarcastically remarks, when America fights a nonviolent war, I'll become nonviolent. There remains one objection to using black power to legitimize violence against injustice, namely a pragmatic one, it will never work. 
But for those who say that violence achieves nothing, Carmichael had a powerful response. The Europeans took America through violence, and through violence they established the most powerful country in the world. Through violence they maintain the most powerful country in the world. It is absolutely absurd for one to say that violence never accomplishes anything. At least in theory, then, black people could succeed in using violence against their oppressors, both at home and abroad, and they would be within their rights to do so. But it was more than a theory. While you might offer a rationale for violent struggle without actually engaging in the struggle, H. Rapp Brown thought it was imperative to take the further step to take action. He was dismissive of the coffeehouse intellectual, who thinks he's political because he reads Fanon. Books don't make revolutionaries. Indeed, the theory was about to be put into practice. The Black Power movement offered a rhetorical and philosophical framework for a more formally organized movement that was going to carry guns openly and use them to defend the community. And they would be fighting with something else, too, something that can be just as dangerous as bullets, ideas. Get ready for our discussion of the philosophy of the Black Panthers, here on the History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 